Good evening, church. It's good to have you tuning in again on a Wednesday night. I want to say thank you for uh, all the gifts and good words for pastor appreciation. The staff really appreciate a little encouragement, and I do also. Tonight I wanted us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. And basically, this story is probably one of the best known stories in the Old Testament. It's also one of the most loved stories. Maybe it's because we see a small town boy who does good or succeeds. Or maybe it's because we have the underdog who wins in spite of impossible odds. Whatever the reason, there are some really life lessons from David and Goliath, and that's why I've entitled this as life lessons. There are principles uh, uh, that maybe we need to learn or maybe we need to be reminded of. And as we get started, we're going to be in that 1 Samuel chapter 17, but, but really I wanted to go over just a little bit of background because background and context always help us to understand any Bible passage more thoroughly. And so, remember in chapter 15, uh, the Lord rejects Saul from being king over Israel. Uh, Saul was the first king anointed. He had started out that God had even given him a new heart. He was head and shoulders above uh, um, his countrymen. Maybe you would consider him sort of a uh, all-American uh, kid, something of that nature. But along the way, he became arrogant. Along the way, he got a little bit full of himself. Along the way, he stopped serving God, and he was very unfaithful to God. And therefore, uh, God sends Samuel, his prophet, to tell him that he rejected him from being king. They'd gone to a battle. They were supposed to wipe out everyone and not take anything, not take any loot or plunder. And uh, even though they were told that, they brought back Agag, the Amalekite king. They brought back a lot of things. And then uh, when, Saul conf when Samuel confronts Saul, he says, well, I have obeyed God. He made an excuse. He said, the people took the very best and we're going to offer it to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 15, beginning verse 22, Samuel says something. As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. And then Samuel really goes away with his heart broken because he had anointed Saul and his hopes had hung on Saul. But God in chapter 16 tells him to quit going after Saul, to quit worrying about that. And he sends him to Bethlehem and tells him to invite Jesse, the Bethlehemite there, and his son. Because out of Jesse's sons, he's going to choose a new king. One literally after his own heart. And as Jesse makes his sons pass through, in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 16, he says, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And then Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. He's the runt of the litter. He's the baby boy. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him. Now he was a ruddy youth with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David that day forward, from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. And then we come to chapter 17, where we're introduced to Goliath. The Philistines were enemies of Israel. And uh, so we're introduced to him in this way. In chapter 17, the first two, three verses, it says the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and the valley was between them. And verse 4 says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's over nine and a half feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the coat of the mail weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds just for the coat of mail. He had bronze armor on his legs, a bronze javelin between his shoulders. He looked like a bronze armadillo. It's the way I picture him, only he's nine and a half foot tall. And it says that the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels of, uh, uh, of 600 shekels. Now, 600 shekels, it means that here he had this big old... Uh, bronze spear and the tip of it was made out of iron and the head of the spear weighed 15 pounds that's what 600 shekels would weigh he stood and cried out to the armies of israel and said why have you come out and line up for battle am i not a philistine and you the servants of saul choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me if he's able to fight with me and kill me then we will be your servants but if i prevail against him and kill him you shall be our servants he said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul and all the Israel heard these words, the feelings, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be in your house. And as we look at this familiar story, enlighten our hearts and our minds. Teach us, Father. But Lord, let us apply these to our life to remember what you've told us to help us to live in a way that will honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. And so we come to the story itself. And there's at least three principles that we need to remember, I believe. Probably more, but it's the three we're going to focus on tonight. First of all is this. Just because we're doing God's will does not mean there will be no opposition. Rather, just the opposite is true. Uh, there will be lots of opposition. When you try to do God's will, there's going to be opposition. 
I'm going to say it again. Any and every time that God is at work in us to accomplish his will, the devil opposes that. He hates God. He hates God's people. So he hates us. And he does not want to see God's done in our lives. And he will bring opposition. That's the very thing that Jesus said when he said, the thief, speaking of Satan, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to destroy the works of God. He wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy um, what God wants to accomplish in our lives. And so there will be opposition even uh, when we're just trying to do, do God's will. The Bible has many examples of this, and we're going to look at it in David's life, but as an illustration that this is a continuing thing, it's one of his tactics. Let's look at some others. Uh, in Scripture, you remember Elijah, the great prophet of God, and his pinnacle moment came when he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And if they are God, Baal was true, then Baal would cause fire to come down and consume the offering. And if not, if God Almighty were true, Yahweh himself, he would cause fire to come down and light a fire on the offering. They hollered all day, nothing happened. Elijah prayed his prayer, fire came down and consumed the altar and even the water, the stones itself that he had drenched with water, lapped up the water in the trench. It all came down and the people hit the ground and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah stands up and says, grab all the prophets. Don't let a single one get away. And he killed them all there at the brook. You'd think after such a great and mighty victory that he would stand and realize his life had done something for God, that his purpose had been true. But right after that, Elijah runs for his life from one wicked lady named Jezebel. He runs so far that he leaves his servant in one town and goes out into the desert, crawls under a tree and asks God to die because he was tired and he alone was left. Wow. Opposition, even at the highest moment of God winning a victory. Think about it in the life of Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends upon his shoulder, all right, and remains the Holy Spirit. God speaks from heaven in a voice saying, This is my well-loved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, he has to go through the temptation over 40 days and 40 nights. We could go on. Uh, look in the book of Acts. Acts specifically, verses 7 and 8. The church is just exploding. Thousands come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Miracles being done on every hand. They have favor with God and the people. And then Satan turns it loose. What does he turn loose? Persecution. Saul of Tarsus arises. The religious leaders arise. Um, eventually, they have the first martyrs in Stephen and then in uh, James. We understand what's happening here. Hear it again. Opposition comes when God works in our lives to accomplish his will. But what about David? How did that happen in his life? The first one that opposed him was his older brother, Eliab. He is rushed to the battle. 
His father is sending to bring uh, uh, supplies for his brothers and and he wants to hear how it's going. And he drops the supplies off, rushes out to see the armies lining up. He hears the Goliath yelling his threats and same challenges as he had day after day. And no one's doing anything. He said, what's going to happen to the man who does this for King Saul? And they tell him, well, you'll get uh, his daughter as your wife. And not only that, but you won't have to pay taxes. And he said, oh. And then it says in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 17, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, and you come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done? Is there not a cause? His very family, his oldest brother, rose up to oppose him, even though God was stirring his heart to do something about this Philistine, this, this pagan insulting God, the one true God of Israel and his people. Eliab says some hateful things, some ugly things. He tried to tell him he was out of place. Where are the sheep? You're supposed to be with the sheep. He tells him that he knows how he is, that, that he's insignificant, but he has a prideful and arrogant heart. And the spiritual truth is, unfortunately, that those closest to us often provide the most opposition when God begins to work in our lives to accomplish His will. Those closest to us, the ones who support, who should support us, who should be happy for us, who should be glad we've chosen to serve God and follow His will, those are often the ones who give the most opposition. I'll never forget finally surrendering to God. I should have done it years before I did. When I finally surrendered, there was a peace that settled on me. I remembered that I'd gone to church that morning, and my sisters and I, and, and we had actually walked to church that morning and walked home, and I just felt light as a feather. I'd finally done what God had wanted me to do for so long, what I'd rebelled against doing. And as soon as I walked in the door, my sisters, because uh, I'd walked slowly, had beat me home and told my mama, and her first words out of her mouth is, why would you do something like that? And my dad walked in, I'll not have it. Later they changed their mind, but it was just like somebody poured cold water all over everything I thought that God was doing in my life. Hear me. When God speaks, we're supposed to obey. When God moves us, we're supposed to stir and follow Him. But hear me well. Opposition will come, and often it comes from the corners we think it would never come from. From the very ones who have supported us our whole lives often object to what we feel God would have us to do. The second one that objects and tries to, to dissuade Davis is, David is King Saul himself. You see, now at first, uh, he objects. Later, he lets him go on to battle. But at first, he does. In verse 33 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, And Saul said to David, You shall not be able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he is a man of war from his youth. He, he's discouraging him. He, he's telling him, you can't do this. You're too small. You're too insignificant. 
Uh, you don't have any kind of power. Look at you. You're a scrawny little kid, and he is a mountain of a man who's been fighting since before your age. Hmm. A few questions about that. How did Saul know that Goliath had been a warrior since his youth? Was Goliath just some kind of famous person in all that area of, of that land because he was such a terror, because he's so big, because he'd killed so many people? Maybe. Or maybe Saul had given ear, not to God, but to the giant's threats as he went back and forth every day stomping, mad, give me a man to fight. Come on, let me grind him up. Send out your champion. I'm the champion of the Philistines. And there he was listening to him bragging. Do we understand that? We understand that Saul tries to get him to fight with things he wasn't used to. But David knew some things that Saul didn't. David knew some things that Goliath didn't. Because the third one to oppose him here is Goliath. And I, I figure if you're going out to do battle with somebody, you sort of expect them to oppose you. But do we understand that? Do we understand that on the way to battle, he stopped at the brook, probably running through the center of the valley in my mind's eye, and picks five smooth stones. As a child, that always bothered me. Well, how much faith did he have if he thought he was going to miss him, if he thought he wouldn't do the job? But scholars believe that he chose five because Goliath was rumored to have four brothers. Whatever God wanted done, God was going to do, and David was going to be ready to be there, ready. So it was faith. But do we understand uh, what David knew that Goliath didn't know? See, Goliath uh, was of the Philistines. They 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 had started entering the land way back when Abraham was there, and they just had a stronghold in the land now and they were mortal enemies of the Jewish people and they, they had even captured early in Samuel's ministry they had captured the ark okay and we need to understand that the lesson here is always to remember who our power is where our power comes from. And when we remember it's from God, we should keep our eyes upon Him. We need to remember who is the source of our power and we need to keep our eyes upon Him. David personally knew his God. He told King Saul these words in chapter 17, verse 34. David said to Saul, your sheep, I used to keep, my father's sheep, and when the lion or the bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he would deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines didn't know the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They had lots of them. In 1 Samuel 4, uh, 1 through 11, and 1 Samuel 5, 1 and 2, uh, they had actually routed uh, uh, <clears throat> Israel and captured the ark and taken him to their chief deity, Dagon's temple in Philistia. And he was their chief god, but he wasn't their only god. And so when Goliath stood facing David, he didn't understand the one David was fighting for. If, if you read in 1 Samuel 17, and we, we read it earlier, uh, that in verse 8, uh, he cried out, Why are you lined up in battle? Choose a man for yourselves and come to me. In other words, he thought the battle was his, his power. He didn't understand God, not the true God. And he threatened uh, David. You see, David remembered where his power was from. David had spent time with God there as a shepherd. David had spent time with God. He knew that God had delivered him from the lion, from the bear. He knew God had protected him in all instances. He knew God was faithful, and that's who he was depending upon. When opposition arises, we need to remember who is the source of our power, and we need to keep our eyes fixed steadily upon him so he can continue to work his way and his will to accomplish what he will through us. That's why it's so imperative that we spend time with God alone in prayer and in Bible study. That's why it's so imperative that, that we make sure that we're serving the one true living God in any way he calls us to serve because it's as we serve, as the attacks and opposition come, that we learn how faithful our God is. Here is young David, but a youth, a teenager, and he has learned his lessons well. A man called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he'd spent so much time with the Lord, lonely at night, alone with God. Any fears he had, God had comforted him. Any fears later in life he'd have, God was his rock, his refuge, his shield, his wall, his bulwark, which means a defensive position on the walls. But he knew that, and he kept his eye upon the God of the universe. He had a true God, not one of the false gods that the Philistines made out of rock or wood, but the one who was a living God. We still serve the living God, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins and ascended to the Father and promised one day he's coming back for us. We still serve that same God. And we need to remember he's the source of our power. It's not us. He goes on and says, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And we need to remember that. So, remember opposition's going to come. Remember, when it does come, remember who the source of our power, our strength is, and turn to him and keep our eyes upon him. And the final lesson is this. No matter what the opposition no matter what the opposition, God will bring victory as he sees fit. God will bring victory as he sees fit. You see, he faces Goliath in the name of God. And in verse 44, the Philistine, in verse 43, it says, The Philistine, Goliath, said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. 
And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. He didn't have a sword. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air, to the lobbies of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you your hand. So it was when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Now think about it. He knew God would give victory however he saw fit. And here this mountain of a man, a modern day, uh, you know, what would be like a tank coming at him with this spear that has a 15 pound head on it ready to chunk it at him. With, with a sword strapped to his head, side. With, with, and I know that because later that's what David uses to cut his head off with. With a armor bearer, a, a, a one who bore his shield in front of him. And David doesn't just wait for him to come to him. He runs at him and reaches in his pouch, puts a stone, and we know the rest of the story, slings it and sinks deep within the forehead of Goliath. He falls down. David rushes upon him and cuts his head off. And then the Philistine army runs and Israel has a great victory. See, God can bring victory as he sees fit. We understand that, but do we remember that? The same God that brought that victory can bring us victory. Victory over this pandemic, victory over personal crises in our lives, victory over uh, all the problems that we face as Satan attacks, as opposition mounts because we're trying to serve God and God's trying to work through us and Satan can't stand it. Do you understand that? What David said in verse 45, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then later on he says, because the battle is the Lord's. And sometimes we need to look to him. Sometimes we need to realize he'll bring it as he sees fit. When you compare these two, Goliath represented the worldly economy of his day, the evil. David represents God. And there's going to be that fight, but one always overcomes the other. Our God is always victorious. We need to understand that. Now, God can bring victory, but notice I said he does so as he sees fit. I want us to understand something. Victory comes in many different ways and many different forms. You remember in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, Stephen the first martyr of the church is standing before those people. He's preached them a message. He's told them they need to believe in Jesus. He told them how hard-hearted how hard they are, how stiff-necked they are. They rise up and they stone him and he dies. And as he's dying, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father waiting on him. And he says, Father, don't put this into their charge. And there he died. But it was victory. He went to heaven. It was victory. He had a witness. See, the witness there, as they stoned him, they laid their feet 
at the, their, their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later persecuted the church, who later was struck down on the road to Damascus, who later became the greatest missionary, one of the greatest ambassadors that Christianity has ever known. I believe. I can't prove it. It's just in my heart. I think he can never get over Stephen's witness to who Jesus was and how calmly he died and how he forgave them even though they were stoning him. It was victory because I believe he used that event even though Saul rebelled, even though Saul tried to get away from it and he could not get away from it. He was struck down and he said, why are you kicking against the pricks? It's hard for you. Why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. And he'd been introduced to Jesus. If he hadn't already heard of the miracle worker, he heard the sermon from Stephen. It was victory. So God gives us victory. For some, it means total deliverance the way it did with David. For some, it means sacrifice. For some, it means even death. But it's still victory. Because God is working His will and His purposes through our lives as we surrender to Him. So realize that. Take heart in that. Remember those principles that when you, when you surrender to God's will, when you're trying to do God's will the very best you can, there will be opposition. Remember that it doesn't really matter <clears throat> what the opposition is, okay? That, that God uh, is still in control. Remember that really and truly that uh, God is the one who's going to bring about the victory. See? But remember that it's not up to me or you. It's not for our glory. It's for His. So we need to remember the source of our power and look to Him. We need to submit to Him bringing the victory any way He sees fit so that He can be glorified. Those are life lessons to live by. I think we would do well to listen to the story with maybe a new angle, maybe just a different sight than just the feel-good story, but to realize that even when David was being attacked by the Philistine, he had already been anointed as king of Israel and God was working his purposes through David, a descendant of Abraham and ultimately of the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Have a good evening, church, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Good night.